Hello everyone and welcome to Lessons of Innovation, the podcast that brings you valuable tips and advice to help you succeed on your innovation journey. I am Mo, an entrepreneur and the host of this show. And in today's episode, I am pleased to welcome Chris Coldridge, who for those who do not know him, he's an entrepreneur, a mentor, and a board advisor for several startups. He's also a professor of innovation and entrepreneurship and the founder of the University of Cambridge Business School Entrepreneurship Program. Chris is a true expert in the innovation practice and a serial entrepreneur who I'm very, very excited to have with me today. Chris, welcome to the show. It's fantastic to join you. Thank you so much for inviting me. So, you know, I have a lot of questions for you today, but just for a start, I'd like to know and hear more a bit about your background. How did you get to where you are right now? Well, I'm American, but I moved to London when I was 23 and uh, fell in love with the UK. And shortly after, I started my first business, uh, which was a marketing agency, actually going into competition with the employer who brought me to London. That's, of course, a very common entrepreneurial pattern is going into competition with your former employer. I built a business with two business partners over a 10-year period, exited in fairly a staggered style, some sales, some sales to uh, financial investors, a sale to a trade buyer, and also some closures. Then I, I went off to London Business School to do an MBA and think about my next steps. While I was there, I realized that I really loved business school. Probably it wasn't a coincidence that my kids came along at that time. So the life of an academic was uh, more compatible with being a, a good dad than, than starting a bunch of additional businesses. So I went off to the London School of Economics and did a second master's degree in organizational and social psychology and a PhD in business model innovation. I then went to University College London, where I taught strategy and entrepreneurship in the School of Management. And towards the end of my time there ran the master's degree in technology entrepreneurship. And it was my ambition in in running that master's degree to turn it into a sort of hybrid master's degree stroke accelerator, stroke startup accelerator, where we would really take in only students who wanted to be entrepreneurs or already entrepreneurs, teach them the tools of the trade as uh, alongside the academic content and launch ventures into the world. Probably got about 60% of the way to my vision there. And feeling a bit blocked, I, I looked around for other universities that might might be more enthusiastic. I, I, I joined Cambridge University four years ago now to set up the master's degree in entrepreneurship, with which the Judge Business School now runs. And interestingly, I found that two years into my time in the university, I was having the same conversations that I'd had at UCL about why we couldn't make it more like an accelerator. So I stepped down, not from being a faculty member, which is a very privileged position, but from the role of running master's degrees and went to the dean of the business school and said, can I set up a venture builder on the side and take what I've learned over the last 15 years of teaching entrepreneurs, running entrepreneurship programs, both inside and outside universities to, to figure out a new and better way of, of startup building. And, and I was pleased to find that the, unsurprisingly, Cambridge University is very receptive to its faculty doing innovative things. And uh, I was given the license to go and to be creative. That's a quiet, rich, entrepreneurial and academic background. So from the experience you have working with entrepreneurs or teaching lessons of entrepreneurship, can you tell me what actually makes entrepreneurs entrepreneurial? Is it their behaviors, way of thinking or approach or something else? 
Yeah, I think it's a great question. The the key way to think about it, I think, is about it's it's a mindset. And what's always been exciting to me is that I've worked with people who have adopted the mindset, who've made a transformation from a non-entrepreneurial mindset to an entrepreneurial mindset. So, of course, if you're in my position, people are always asking you, can you really teach entrepreneurship? And I say, well, you, you can't maybe teach the desire to do this, but you can teach the mindset. And here's how I would break down the mindset. I would suggest that there's an aspect which is about taking action and there's an aspect which is about being reflective. And it's about keeping these two elements in balance. What you read in books about entrepreneurship all the time right now, the lean startup, all these sort of experimental scientific method ideas about innovation. Of course, there there's a lot of wisdom there, but to make it work, you have to have both the inclination to meet uncertainty by taking action, right? to have a bias to action when you don't know, to actually take some probes into the real world to bring ideas or bring concepts into contact with real customers or real, real stakeholders who will respond to those concepts and ideas. But when you're taking that action, you then have to have a reflective mindset about what you're learning from that action, right? What I often see sort of people who are first getting into the lean startup world, they become addicted to taking action, right? They, they say, okay, I've developed a huge map of different experiments and a plan, and now I've, I've cracked the process. And, and so what we have to do is say, well, let's be reflective about the results of those, of those experiments, and let's be reflective about what we are not going to be able to find out through experiments, what we're going to have to commit to on some level or in, endure some switching costs uh, because we're going to make a commitment to a particular path of exploration, a particular set of partners, a particular sort of provisional positioning in the market, provisional statements about what it is that we're doing, and balance action and reflection in that way as well, where we, we recognize the limits of experimentation and, and are, are able to, to do that. So looping back to your original question, what, what, makes the, what makes the entrepreneur, right? So it's balance of action and reflection. It's bringing disparate groups of people together, right? In order to make some vision, some idea, some concept a reality, how do I reach outside my immediate network and bring what I'm doing into contact with some other people who will find the activity that I'm engaged in valuable, right? This sort of boundary spanning activity where it's not just working with your close set, it's working with people who are in distant sets and it's finding ways to talk to them and inspire them and roll them on the journey that is, is what an entrepreneur is, is really doing. So these, these elements together, to me, make up the mindset. So, so from what you've mentioned, are there different entrepreneurial theories or frameworks that helps to guide those entrepreneurs to assess the opportunities that they might have in hand? Well, yes. The, the most famous, in my opinion, is John Mullen's Seven Domains framework from his book, The New Business Road Test. John was a professor of mine once upon a time. And, and, and it's, very, it's valuable because it, it does a nice job of marrying the customer perspective with the, let's say, investor and competitive perspective with the execution and team perspective. So the, the seven domains analysis is looking at domains across those three areas. It, it, it has a limitation, like all frameworks do, which is that certain elements of it, it's a little bit easier to make the assessment once the 
venture or once the concept is really standing on its feet and has some reality. So early stage exploration, early stage innovation is partly about saying, okay, where do we see a problem that's severe and we have reason to believe that the problem is going to get worse? And rather than think in terms of how can we know how big that opportunity is or how do we project a possible ROI from that, we say, well, we're going to have to go and enter the space. We're going to have to go and become a player in the space. We're going to have to go and do experiments in the space before we can begin to make this kind of opportunity evaluation style assessment. So does that mean the early choices those entrepreneurs make actually have an impact on the way they grow their ventures? For sure. Yeah. So some of the choices that are, are quite sticky are initial choices of execution team, right? They, they get locked in pretty quickly. Initial choices of sort of where you're going to found the venture, right? Even if, even if you're a, a large corporate with lots of potential sites that you could develop the venture, the early relationships of the venture are going to be local, right? Even in this Zoom world we're living in now, close collaborators tend to be local. And so the ecosystem that you found in, that you choose is, is going to be sticky. There's an interesting choice that you have to make at an early stage about, about reputation, right? If you partner with high status partners at an earlier stage, it's going to be easier to partner with high status partners later on. If you partner with middle status partners early on, uh, you're going to have to really outperform or do something exceptional at that early stage to sort of jump a status league. So there's, you know, there's some interesting path dependence there. That, that's certainly an interesting one. What about the choices of business model? Does that have an impact? Yes, certainly coming from the Cambridge ecosystem, this is one of my key bugbears, is that I find that especially innovators who start from a solutions perspective or, or a technology perspective, often don't consider a business model early enough in their process. They say, okay, my first job is to build the solution and find the customer for the solution, and then I'll worry about the business model. But in my experience, innovators who are already thinking about the basics of how am I going to design a business model to be scalable? How am I going to design a business model to be defensible? How am I going to design a business model that has a lot of interesting points of differentiation potentially built into it, find it far easier to turn a solution that meets a customer into something that really has a lot of economic value? That's a good point you're raising out there. So why do you think entrepreneurs often jump straight into solutioning instead of speaking to customers first to better understand their pains and validate their needs before solve for that problem? Yeah, it's a great question. For I, the first five or six years of my teaching of entrepreneurship, I used to always teach in a very purist way that you must not think about your product. You must not think about your solution. You must go and see the customer, you know, with a blank, a blank canvas behind you and just identify the problem and then start work. And after five or six years, I realized that this teaching never stuck, that, that entrepreneurs just cannot think that way, right? That the, the part of the drive that's luring the innovator to do what they want to do is that they have some kind of solution in mind, that they're excited by the prospect of making, right? Of being the one who brings the vision into, into reality. And so, although I, I still believe now that it's perfectly correct that, of course, you should have a very open mind about your 
potential solution, go and talk to customers, etc. I think we have to accept the reality that the the best we can do in in helping early stage innovators is to help them hold their ideas lightly, right? And to say, okay, of course you're going to be you're going to get up in the morning thinking about the 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 product or solution that you're trying to build, but rejoice when you find a way to transform it into something that you did you wouldn't recognize six weeks ago or last week, but that is actually really different, but is more responsive to what the customer actually faces in their challenges, right? So it's I, I find that it while it's impossible to get entrepreneurs to drop the idea of having that solution in the back of their mind, it is possible to get them to feel excited about the journey of transformation that their idea is going to go on before it's actually fit for the marketplace. So help me understand a bit more. What do you think is the best approach to develop an understanding of the customer pains, needs, and problems? Uh, And maybe you could anchor that by giving us an example from the accelerator program you are currently building. Sure. So broadly speaking, the the category that my venture builder falls into is Startup Accelerator. I obviously had many of my former students go through Startup Accelerator, so I'd had plenty of opportunity to observe sort of from a distance, what what's their you know, what's their experience? I'd had coffees with people over the years, saying, "Okay, what was it like?" and so on. And of course, I'd done a lot of reading on the subject in preparation for my lectures. But the very first thing that I did in in deciding to set up my own was to force myself to set up forty coffees with former students and also friends of former students who had been through accelerators, and just go in and say, "Tell me about your experience." what worked, what didn't work, what was the valuable part, what was the part that was a nuisance, what gave you you know, a heartache, what surprised you and di- what disappointed you and all these kinds of questions, right? And, and I got tremendous learning from this. And it's not just learning in the sense of, oh, well, there are some interesting aspects of what the experience was really like for these, these entrepreneurs that I hadn't considered before. It was also learning about the language and the granular detail of the way the entrepreneurs were thinking about the problems that they were trying to solve when they went into these accelerators. Because this made my thinking much more rich in terms of, okay, what's what are the features, what are the benefits that really matter in an accelerator? What are the design aspects that continually came up again and again that tripped people up and made people feel that, that there was missed opportunities or problems? And it meant that when I came to recruit my founding team, my co-founding team and my business partners, I had a much richer vocabulary and a much richer vein of anecdotes and experiences to share with them to help them see why the accelerator space is broken. We're going to do it a lot, a lot better and therefore we're going to be far more successful and make much more money. What I'm trying to share here is that it's all connected, right? Your ability to dive deep and understand the customer is critical to your ability to talk to everyone else in the project and to and to draw together all of the elements of, of the design that, that you're trying to bring to life. And I assume all this help and in increase the value of that venture, and especially when it comes eventually to, to probably raising funding. Yeah, well, I find that what is most impressive when a, a founder is talking about their idea is not that they can describe the idea with exquisite language and you know, beautiful business model canvas or something like this, right? That they've really thought through the mechanics of the model. It's the relationships that they've formed based on 
the activity that they're proposing to undertake, right? If, if a founder tells me, okay, let me map out for you. Let me show you my pitch deck. Let me show you how much thought I've put into it. That's much less interesting and much less motivational than saying, let me tell you about all the people I've brought on board because they're excited about what I'm trying to do and they want to go on the journey with me. So the ability for an entrepreneur to be able to bring other people and the right team to help them build the venture is an important point you've just raised. Uh, so the question becomes, what kind of confounding partners entrepreneurs should bring on board as they build their ventures? Are there like any specific characteristic or... So your co-founding partner, I'm very firmly in the school of thought that is, is highly fashionable these days, but I think it's also right that you need a co-founding partner to get things off the ground. Your co-founding partner, you're looking for, firstly, a collaborator, right? I mean, let's start there and say, well, the best ideas, the most creative ideas, the most interesting ideas arise from co-creation, from dialogue, right? So a apart from anything to say about their skills, their qualifications, etc. It's the fact that they're there with you on the journey, collaborating with you. The second thing that we should think about in a founding partner is that they need to be complementary. Now that could be complementary in skills, right? And, and certainly the way that Mullins describes opportunity evaluation focuses on this idea of the founding team should have the skills that are necessary to execute the critical success factors for the project. Makes sense, right? It's very unlikely one person, no matter how much of a renaissance individual they are, has all the skills that are needed, right? You, you need a complementary set of skills, but you need complementarity in other ways if you can get it. Probably skills is the most important, but if you can get complementarity in social capital, that's huge, right? Different networks that you're going to bring together through the team. If you can get complementarity in, let's say, working style, so some people are maybe thinkers, other people are doers, other people are people people, relationships people. Those are three pillars that it's quite good to have in a startup team. If you can achieve it, a complementarity in personality is really helpful, right? I make a point when I'm doing any kind of innovation project, startup or not, to surround myself with people who are more execution oriented and are more detail minded. I, I, I do that to partly to impose discipline on myself, right? I have collaborators, even in my current team, who I actually, on some days, I find them annoying, but I don't choose them because they, they have the same exploratory mindset that I have. I choose them because they have a different mindset. And I know that if our mindsets complement each other, we're more likely to arrive at a good outcome. So complementarity of skills, complementarity of social capital, complementarity of working style, complementarity of personality, if you can get it, is really helpful. We've had a lot of interesting research evidence recently that innovation teams with women in them do very well compared to teams that are only men. And the research is still not quite there in terms of why is that. But we can certainly speculate that maybe some of the relationship aspects that are so important to effective team working that the, the working style that women often bring to the workplace and, and to projects can help with this element, right? I don't want to overstress this point because the, the jury's still out on the research. But, but I, when we talk about complementarity, I, I suggest people should think of all kinds of complementarity. Right. So having the right team in place will help in reducing the risk of failure. And with this in mind, I'd like to ask you, what are other things entrepreneurs can do to minimize the risk of failure and increase the potential of success as they build their own ventures? 
That's a great question. So I think the fundamental mistake that first-time entrepreneurs usually make that increases the risk of failure quite a lot is that they think that what they're building is a company. We've all worked in organizations. And so we know what an organization has, right? An organization has a marketing team, finance team, HR team, and so on, right? And so we think, oh, I just need to build a miniature version of that. The challenge at the early stage is to avoid the temptation to do that. And the temptation is strong because actually building structures that mimic an established organization, it's in some senses, it's easier and easier. The challenge at the early stage is to limit the scope of your ambition to one question, which is, is this venture worth building? Is it worth spending more time and money on it? So one element that's important in starting out on a journey to answer that question is perhaps to put a stop loss on and to say, let's figure out what's the maximum time I'm going to devote to figuring out this question. I I think this is a very useful sort of starting point. For many entrepreneurs, a lot of research shows this, do have some money in their back pocket. We have a romantic image of the struggling poor man who's bought by his bootstraps. But the reality is that often businesses are started by people who have some money from somewhere. Well, so you might you might still want to eat tuna and, and so on. But if if the entrepreneur has some money, then it's as well as the stop loss on time, it's also important to put in the stop loss on how much cash am I going to sink into this, right? Because we know a lot, there's a tremendous research, not only in entrepreneurship, but in innovation more generally, that resource scarcity and and being in a lean situation is really helpful to getting good outcomes because not feeling like, well, I've got a fairly unlimited budget on this project helps people identify their bad decisions and change them or identify their faulty assumptions and change them early enough that you haven't yet run out of time to discover the right way forward. If we feel too comfortable, if we have money and time, then we tend to back our judgment, right? We buy into the persistence story to say, I'm sure my vision is right. I just need to be more persistent in in pursuing it. Whereas if you feel like you're running out of time and money, you're more likely to say, oh, okay, what I was doing before is not working. I better come up with a better idea. Then once you've created these stop losses, you try to break down the early stage problem to the, the minimum components. And these are those minimum components. The minimum components are who's your customer, what problem do they have, and and importantly, how do they describe the problem? It's not important how you think the problem should be described. It's important how they think the problem should be described. A value proposition, and I don't mean a product. I just mean a statement about, hey, if I solve that problem for you, customer, is it something that would excite you? Is it something that you would pay for? Is it something where you would go on the journey with me to go from version one of this solution to finished version of this solution, right? You need some kind of execution team, but really as big as needed, but as small as possible. And you need to identify any key relationships that if there are key doors that you're going to need to open in order to get this thing to work, you need to do a little bit of validation that those doors are actually possible to open. And that's all you need, right? Understanding of the customer's problem, value proposition that gets the customer on board, team, and access to any other non-customer relationships that you're going to need to build it. If you get those, you validate those, then you move on, right? Then you can say, okay, now it's something that's worth pursuing. It's worth developing to the next stage. Still, of course, a high risk of failure or a relatively high risk of failure compared to uh, a proven model, but you have minimized your risk of failure because you've confined yourself only to those, those key questions. Right. 
the components seem very simple, but I know it's hard to follow during implementations. Given what you've just said, I wonder what corporates that are trying to innovate need to do to succeed with their innovation programs and learn from the entrepreneurial lesson you just mentioned? A very important question. So I, I would say the fundamental improvement that almost every corporate could make in their in the way they approach their innovation portfolio, and I, I start with this concept of portfolio, very important concept, is to divide a very clean, bright dividing line, risky projects from uncertain projects, right? Projects where it's possible fairly early on to calculate a, a possible ROI, of course, with a certain amount of estimation and, you know, artistry from projects where it's really not possible to calculate an ROI, where it's genuinely too early in the process to calculate an ROI. Many, many corporates, they end up with a situation where because they ask the ROI question at an early stage of every single project, they don't get very far with the projects where it's just not possible to calculate. And so I think if there's a clear, bright dividing line between, okay, risky projects over here, and they require a certain innovation discipline, right? certain stage gate management and so on, uncertain projects over here, and for those projects, we're going to follow the entrepreneurial method. Right? We're going to follow the, the method that I've just been describing. Of course, there are certain conditions that, that should be in place, like it, it's a big problem. We think the problem's getting worse. That tells us there's a big opportunity there. But we don't trouble ourselves by saying, okay, so first job is to quantify the opportunity. We say, first job is to go and identify who the customer is, who the first customer would be, or the first 10 customers would be, see the world from their point of view, develop the value proposition that's going to get them on board, see if we can identify other resources and relationships we're going to need and are we going to be able to kind of tie them into the project get the team excited about the about about the project and then gradually usher that type of exploration based innovation into the fold of the of the risky projects right of the projects that are in the normal funnel of innovation projects so i just want to move the very last section which is really a quick round where i'll just ask you one or two questions given a time and you answer them in like a one minute the first one is what is the best advice you would often give for entrepreneurs and corporate innovators the best advice that i would give for entrepreneurs and corporate innovators is treat setbacks as data Treat setbacks as data. When you get into uncertainty-based projects, you, you're following intuition. It's hard to make really cold, rational judgments. Everything is emotion-driven. And therefore, it's hard not to get emotional about your decision-making. You have to use your nose and your hunches and so on. And you can find yourself drawn down a, a, an unproductive path of emotion-driven approaches where you say a setback is unwelcome news. Right. And actually, you just need to have a very stoic uh, approach and say, yeah, failure is part of the game, but we don't call it failure. We call it a setback and we treat it as data. We mine it for the information that it contains. We, we treasure and preserve that information, right? Because actually it tells us don't go down those paths. It tells us something about, okay, maybe those paths over there are better. You know, in a lot of organizational cultures, failure is a bad word. We sweep it under the carpet, right? So treating setbacks as data, I think, is, 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 is a key discipline that just builds resilience, both on an individual level and on an organizational level. 
treating setbacks as a data. Great advice. One last question in here. What is your favorite innovation or entrepreneur-related books you're currently reading? I just finished Loon Shots, which is not the first book in its genre, but it's really about saying, okay, how do we try to create innovation environments and innovation approaches where we're going to get those high-end outcomes, we're going to get those breakthrough radical outcomes. What are the steps we can take to avoid snuffing out originality too early? One of the strange features of the innovation process is that you know, when you're in high uncertainty, you go and ask for lots of advice. And sometimes what that advice is, is, oh, your idea is too crazy and too original to shave some of the shave some of the edges off it and it'll be more recognizable and simpler for people to get their minds around and you'll do better. And of course, sometimes that's the right advice. There, there is a level of, of strangeness that people can't process, but often we need to remember that the reason we're embarking on a project in the first place is to do something different. And we shouldn't always listen to advice that says, make it look more like that other project that was successful last month. Loon Shot is another great book that I've recently read as well. And I do recommend it for all the listeners to check it out. And with that in mind, I'd like to bring this episode to an end. Chris, it's been great to see you again and having you on the show. Yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation and, uh, and thanks for having me on again. Thank you. Just before we leave, I'd like to ask our listeners to rate and subscribe to this show so that you don't miss any episode but also to help others discover this show and benefit from this podcast. You can listen to this show on all your favorite podcast network, whether that's Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, or any other network. If you want more information, you can check out my website. That is www.lessonsofinnovation.com. And until next time, thanks for listening.